Amen. Well, welcome to Restoration Road Church this morning. And uh, I have the privilege of being able to bring the word to you this morning, as I do several times each year. I'm very thankful for Pastor Sam and for the devotion that he has to weekly bringing the word to us and preaching God's word and sharing with us his truth. And um, happy to be able to give Sam a break this week as uh, we are actually going to take a break from Genesis uh, for one week. So if you came here hoping for a great sermon on Cain and Abel, that will be next week, and Sam will be preaching that, and I'm sure that will be as good as all the sermons that have been preached so far on Genesis. But today, we're going to be talking about a subject that doesn't probably get quite as much um, airtime as it should. Um, it's relevant for us as believers, or even if you're not a believer in Christ yet, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good subject to consider and to think about and uh, for us to be um, engaging in this morning. Um, part of the reason is is uh, why it's good this right now is because uh, in just later this week we're going to be starting a new year and a lot of you may be making New Year's resolutions. and So sometimes it's good to actually consider what resolutions need actually re- repentance for and what don't. <clears throat> and also because of our last Sunday sermon on the Garden of Eden and how um, Adam and Eve fell into a life of constant sin, terminated by death. There was a need for repentance right at the very beginning. And so, since we just covered that subject last week, now we're going to be talking a little bit more about repentance this week. Restoring repentance is what this sermon is entitled. So, hopefully when you came in this morning, you got your sackcloth and ash given to you by the same guy that gave you the bulletin. If not, well, it'll have to be done a different way then. But as you know, in the Old Testament, you see that a lot of times. Repentance, whenever repentance was needed or required, they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes for sometimes days or weeks as they mourned over their sin. And so um, that's not necessarily the model we have now in the New Testament for repentance. But we, we do have a lot in the Bible about repentance. And so we're going to be reading from several passages in the Bible about repentance, and we're not going to be going through each one verse by verse as we we typically do, but we're going to be looking for certain truths about repentance, what God has revealed to us about it through those passages. So first we're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he makes um, some, um, gives us some knowledge about repentance. So we'll start with verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is God's word. <clears throat> so the Bible does have a lot to say about repentance. Uh, we know that repentance is a requirement for you know, entrance into the kingdom of God. That repentance and faith are, are coupled together in the Bible. But before we get too much into it, I want to stop and, and let's, let's define what repentance is because I'm guessing there may be some of you who don't even know what the word means. So basically what repentance means is that uh, it is a change in your mind about a particular thing. And then it is followed up with a change in action or behavior. Another way of defining it would be that it is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Okay? So it is a, it is a sorrow over sin, and it is a change in our thinking about that sin. We no longer view it as being okay or appropriate or good. Um, and then we, we, we forsake it, and we... We walk in obedience. Now, many might consider repentance simply just being turning away from sin, and that's certainly part of it, as I just said, but it's, I think, partly um, possible, theoretically, to turn away from sin without really having a change of heart or a change of mind about it. But we do know that change in behavior always happens as a result of repentance. And uh, it's because your heart and your mind have been changed concerning the sin. And this is why um, there can no longer be a cavalier attitude towards sin after true repentance. And um, so you're not going to view it as being some sort of, oh yeah, it's no big deal. No, you actually take it seriously. You actually consider what, you, what your, your sin was to have actually been a grievous offense against God, and you take responsibility for it, and you confess it, you, re, you repent, you change. But it's also um, important for us to understand that repentance is not a work of man, but it is truly a work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very clear in various places that no one can repent, no one can believe unless God is working in your heart. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This indicates that repentance is something that God gives. It's only possible because of his grace. No one can repent unless God first grants repentance. I'm reminded of that place in Hebrews where it talks about uh, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, Esau, and how Esau was not able to get uh, his, his blessing even when he sought it with tears. And uh, he wasn't able to repent, even though he sought it with tears. There was a time in Esau's life when he actually was trying, wanting the change, but God didn't, for whatever reason, give it to him. Um, so all of salvation, including repentance and faith, it's a result of God drawing us to himself. It's a result of him opening our spiritual eyes and, and um, changing our hearts so that we can and will believe. 
The natural inclination of man without God intervening is to run away from him, is to flee him, is to, is to get away from the light and get back into the dark. So the Bible teaches us that not only is God, does the God use grief to lead us to repentance, but that he also uses um, his own patience yeah, to lead us to repentance. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we're told that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is patient. We also learn from Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So it's evidence in Scripture that God's patience and his kindness are meant to lead us to repentance. Our text this morning indicates a third way in which we are led to repentance, namely through godly grief. Now, grief is not usually thought to be a positive emotion. But when it comes to our own sin, it truly is necessary for us to experience grief for our sins for repentance. But Paul is careful to make sure that we understand that there's a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. He says that godly grief produces a repentance without regret. So we don't regret that we repented. We don't regret that we've changed. We're actually good with it. We're okay with it. We embrace it. But he says that worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is like, like when you apologize to someone because you're afraid or you're 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 ashamed that you got caught, or that you're you're upset that you got caught, or or you you apologize or say you're sorry or, or or you're grieving because your sin maybe hurt somebody, but you're not grieving because your sin has offended a holy and living God. <clears throat> Worldly grief is also like the stress that we carry in this life when it causes our hair to turn gray and leads us to an early death, maybe heart disease and other things because of the worry and the stress and the sorrow that we carry in this life that never actually leads us to repent, but it just weighs us down, it burdens us down, and it makes us miserable. That's not the kind of grief that he's talking about. But let's take a um, let's take a look at the situation that Paul is addressing in Corinth. We know that uh, Paul planted the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey, and um, it was an ancient city even in Paul's day. So it had been around for a long time, and it was known for its extreme sexual immorality, among other uh, bad things. And it was exactly that type of sin that had caused a real concern for Paul in his first letter that he wrote to them because he had heard of sexual immorality that was in their church. And so he had addressed that sin, but not just that sin, but he had also addressed sin of arrogance and pride in the rest of the church that he had, he had heard about there. So he had now received news, good news, through Titus, his fellow worker. And... Uh, he had learned through Titus that his rebuke, his earlier rebuke of them, had actually had its intended effect or result in that they had experienced uh, grief and repented. 
He rejoices, actually, Paul does, that they had experienced this grief over the sin because it was the grief that produced in them repentance. Although he wasn't really rejoicing over their grief, but he was rejoicing over the fact that they had changed, they had repented, and they had owned the sin that they had, and they had become new again and forgiven. So this is how God works repentance. We know that he does it through patience, he does it through his kindness, and thirdly, he does it through um, a godly grief or sorrow. So that's what I'd like to focus on for a moment. But more than that, I want to focus on how we can actually pass through the grief of repentance to the joy that is, is waiting for us beyond there. There are really, uh, as I see it, two types of repentance. The first is the repentance that we have to salvation. That is the, the entrance into the kingdom of God. That is when, when we recognize that we are in a, uh, lived a life of rebellion, sin against God, that we're guilty of violating uh, many, if not all, of his commandments, that we are in a place of extreme danger. We're in a place of judgment, that the wrath of God rests upon us. And that, that, brings, forward, that brings forth uh, grief, and that is what God uses to lead uh, a person such as that to repentance through a, an embracing of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers to sinners uh, that through his sacrifice and death on the cross that he forgave uh, the sins of the world. Uh, but there's also a second um, repentance which, which having entered into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of grace, we still, we still struggle with our flesh and we, we, we haven't completely uh, become perfect yet. And um, we still sin because we still have a sinful nature. And even though we've been given a new heart and a new spirit, we still struggle. Even as we read about in the Bible how Paul oftentimes struggled with his sinful nature and he found himself doing things he wished he didn't, not doing the things that he th thought he should. And so we have to repent from time to time because of the sin that drags us down from time to time. And, and uh, because of this indwelling sin within us, we... We have, to, we have to change. We have to recognize that this sin is taking away my joy. This sin is wearing me down. It's, it's burdening me. And so we confess that sin and we, we repent and we, we, we tell God we're sorry. And, and we, we, we are given new strength to, to fight against sin and to live a life of joy. And so um, as I was considering this subject, I, I thought about how important it is for a person to actually experience this grief over their sin. I think that sometimes we, you know, we, we, we become Christians without necessarily having really kind of grieved our sin. We haven't really, really um, uh, dealt with it in that sense. Um, and, and we've been forgiven and we've received his forgiveness. But I think there's a, something about uh, experiencing that grief. And, and, and understanding that it was your sin that brought Jesus to the cross, and that he died for your sin, not everybody else's, but yours. And um, sometimes I think that even when we present the gospel to, to people, when we witness to them the, the gospel of Christ, we, we sometimes will kind of skip over that part of how they are actually, you know, as, as one who is not a Christian, you're actually right now under God's judgment. And you are under his wrath. And that is why Christ came. That is why he came. He didn't come just 
because you were okay, but you could be better. No, he came because you're completely lost and completely broken. And he loves you so much that he came and died for you. And so, um, and I know it can be hard to do that. It can be hard to tell someone, especially someone you really love, that they're in a place of real danger. And I and I experienced that just recently because I have a friend who is dying of cancer, and he's not a Christian. I worked with him for several years, and Cheryl and I went to visit him. And lives in Kirkland with his wife, and he had to retire. Well, he's in his probably almost middle 60s, so he'd be about retired now anyway, but I think he had to retire a little early because of the onset of cancer about five years ago. Well, the cancer's got to a point now where it's, it's going to take him probably in the next weeks, maybe months. I mean, he doesn't have long to live. Cheryl and I went to visit him and his wife, and I loved the guy. And We used to go fishing together. He showed me how to fish for steelhead on the upper sky comish. And, um, he's always been a very generous person. He's always been very kind to me and to my family. And and I, I, I've shared with him the gospel before during the time that we worked together, and he, he always resisted nicely. Um, I, he came to a couple of church events that a, a previous church of mine had put on, and he came there and he heard the gospel proclaimed from the, the guest speaker that was there that day. And so I know he's heard it. But doggone it, when I went to visit with him, I really thought I should probably remind him again of his need for that. And and so but it's really, really hard. You know, it's like, you know, a guy's dying and you don't want to feel like you're pouring salt in his wounds by saying, guess what? If you don't repent, you're going to go to hell. That's not an easy thing to do. So I, Cheryl and I actually, we prayed ahead of time. How do we approach this guy? And his name is Stephen. Um, and so I, I thought, well, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm not going to just go in there. And, and So we visited for a while, and we had a little wine together. And um, he, um, I said, you know, Steve, I said, you're at the sunset of your life right now. I said, what do you have, how, what do you have for me? You know, what have you learned in your life that you'd like to pass on to me? I, I may have a little longer to live than you. And he said, well, that's a really good question. A really good question. Maybe um, he says, you know, just take time to smell the roses in life. Don't be in too big of a hurry. That was his advice to me. And I said, well, thank you. Then I went on just to tell him how much he has meant to me over the years and how much I've loved and appreciated him and his friendship. And then um, then I asked him a little bit about, because I had been to his brother's funeral about 10 years ago, who had also died of cancer, and it had been at a church right there in Kirkland. And we had driven past that church, so I asked him, I said, you know, I drove past the congregational church where your brother's funeral was kept. Do you think that your funeral is going to be there as well? He said, you know, I don't know. I haven't really thought of that. I said, your mother still goes to that church, doesn't she? He goes, oh, yeah. She's been a member there for years. His mother's still alive. She's a dear woman. And then I started to tell him a little bit about our church in Snohomish here. And because, you know, I oftentimes would tell him what, what I was doing with regard to his church and the church we had in Marysville. Then he stopped me. He goes, you know, he goes, this isn't you. He goes, but Lonnie called me just the other day, and we had a nice conversation. Now, Lonnie was another guy that we had worked with who was a Christian, also retired. And um, he goes, we had a great conversation, about 20 minutes, and then Lonnie said, oh, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about. And then Steve said, don't bother, Lonnie. Don't bother. He goes, I know what you believe, and I'm okay where I'm at, so don't, don't waste your breath. So I took that as a sign from from him and, and from God that, you know what, he, right now he's completely closed. And um, I'm praying, though, that I have another opportunity to meet with him 
because um, I talked to him and I said, can I visit you before or after Christmas again? He says, after Christmas. I pray he lasts long enough for Shalom to visit him again. So maybe if you think about it, pray about that. I really I want to see him in heaven. I really do. All right, where was I? Um, so anyway, um, we need a Savior. We all need a Savior. Um, there's none of us that can possibly face God on our own merit, on our own um, goodness, because we're just not good enough. Even as good as Steve is, he's just not good enough, you know? Uh, because we got sin that hasn't been dealt with, needs to be dealt with before we die. Um, and we got to understand that it wasn't just everyone else's sin that caused us to go, that caused Christ to go to the cross. It was, it was mine and it was yours. And, and, you know, if you're a believer and you contemplate that, you, you ought to feel some joy. You ought to feel an emotion of overwhelming gladness, adoration, and joy in the Holy Spirit that Christ died for you, that he, he took on God's wrath on himself. You see, there's no more grief there. That's just pure joy. So I want to take also a, a look at a couple of Old Testament examples of, of repentance and how God used grief in the hearts of men to bring them to repentance. And the first example is one that is concerning King David. And I'm sure you're all familiar, most of you are familiar with the story of King David in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. We read about how David sins grievously first by committing adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. And then in, in order to try to cover up his first sin, he, he compounds it by having her husband Uriah murdered, basically murdering him by having him sent to the front lines of battle where his death was all but certain. And uh, David doesn't repent for his sin until God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to speak to him and to rebuke him uh, about his sin or for his sin. And uh, that is when he does confess his sin. and He recognizes and sees the full gravity of what he had done. And his heart is full of grief and sorrow because of his sin. Um, and at that point, then, he no longer tries to hide it and cover it up. He openly confesses it. And he writes a beautiful psalm, Psalm 51, which is an entire psalm of repentance. Um, and it really kind of gives a really good picture into David's heart after um, he had come to repentance. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knew in his heart that God is just and that he deserved the judgment of God for what he had done. But he also knew that God was a merciful and loving Father who would not turn him away because... As he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That is why he was able to pray in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And God did restore to him his joy, the salvation that he had, although he paid consequence for the sins that he had committed. He, he, there was never really peace in his family ever since then. He did receive peace and joy from the Lord, but, but his life in many ways um, bore the scars of what he had done. 
in the first chapter of, or is it second chapter of an Old Testament book of Joel, we're told about the people of God who are suffering God's judgment because of their unrepentant sin, because of their idolatry. They had been plagued by locusts, which had ravished their crops. There had been drought, and there was an impending assault by an army um, from the north just waiting to come upon them. But God, through the prophet Joel, appeals to the people to repent. Starting verse 12, we see um, the Lord's heart toward uh, his people. He says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. So he says, I want you to like rip your hearts. Don't just rip your clothes. I want you to just really feel that grief in your hearts. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn, not turn and relent, and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even, nur even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is your God? God shows his mercy to the kingdom of Judah by granting to them repentance when they do become grieved over their sin. And Joel captures so beautifully the gracious response of God to sinners who are broken over their sin, who have come to a place of godly sorrow. In verse 18 it says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, and vats, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. It's truly the heart of our compassionate Heavenly Father to pour out His grace and His mercy and love to those who are broken over their sins. The Bible tells us that he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I read uh, an article recently uh, from DesiringGod.org that was written by a pastor named Gavin Ortland, where he describes four steps how joy can be found in repentance. That through the agony and self-abasement that is repentance, that describes true repentance, Peace and joy are to be found at the other end. He describes that repentance is to joy what Good Friday is to Easter. And that the joy of the resurrection only came after the pain of crucifixion. You don't get the, the resurrection without it. 
without the crucifixion. So he says he has four um, different steps, and I'm going to go over each one of these. But they are um, first to fully acknowledge the weight of your sin. That's the first step. Second, he says we need to boldly claim the promises of grace. Third, he says to involve other people as appropriate. And fourth, he says to meditate on Christ's intercession for you. So first, to fully acknowledge the weight of your sin. He says don't make excuses for your sin like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Take ownership for the decision that you did, of what you did. Maybe there were some extenuating circumstances surrounding the decision to sin. But in the end, you were the one who decided that sinning was the best option. And you must admit that your sin was part of the reason that Christ suffered and died upon the cross. That your sins are an offense to a holy and righteous God. You see, before David asked for joy in Psalm 51, he acknowledges the weight of his sin. And he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. The joy of repentance flows directly out of its grief. No path to Sunday morning except through Friday afternoon. Secondly, he says to boldly claim the promises of grace. This is hugely important to understand so that you know that salvation is not of your own doing. Repentance is not what you know, uh, makes you a Christian. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's what Christ did for you. In the gospel, for those who are in Christ, all of our sins were forgiven. They were paid for at the cross. This means that even as we repent of our sin, that's, that, that sin has already been forgiven by Christ through his suffering and death. We may have to bear the consequence of our sin for a time, even as David did, or we may face the gracious discipline of the Lord. But the continual struggle between the spirit and our flesh does not mean that our status in heaven has changed as sons and daughters of the King, Most High King. Still his sons and daughters. This is simply because our salvation is of grace from the very beginning to the very end. It's neither procured nor preserved through our good works. Our salvation rests solely on the justifying work of Christ in our behalf. This knowledge enables us to repent without fear, or as Gavin put it, with a kind of glad abandon. The gospel makes it possible for us to be transparent with one another about our sin and to lay hold of God's promises for forgiveness and change even as we are repenting. Thirdly, he says that we should involve other people as appropriate. Our repentance, of course, though, is first and foremost uh, before God. Even as David prayed in his repentance that my sin against you and you only have I sinned and done was evil in your sight, we acknowledge that our sins are always against God, but there are times when our sins impact those around us and our relationships are broken and in need of mending. That is why we have these words from James for he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
So to the degree that your sin hurt others, your healing, and oftentimes theirs as well, is tied to your confession and repentance. Sometimes there are also sins that seem to have us locked in prison because of our inability to be free of them, even when we have tried repenting of them many times. This is often the case with sexual sins, such as lust and pornography, which many men battle against. In cases like this, it's nearly impossible to be free without the involvement of others. Because these are sins that are normally hidden from the view of others, the inclination of our flesh is to keep them covered up and continue living as though nothing is hindering us or weighing us down. But often the only path to freedom and joy is to take the path of humiliation and suffering in the flesh that was modeled to us by Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Peter tells us this. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Experiencing a godly grief over our sin enables us to humbly confess our sins, which in turn brings forth repentance. That brings a change in our minds about the sin and a lasting change in our behavior. Fourthly, meditate on Christ's intercession for you. As good as it is for us to experience godly grief over our sins in that it brings about repentance without regret, it's not a place where we desire to stay. God doesn't want us to just to hang out with sackcloth and ash forever. He wants us to come to a place of receiving his forgiveness, accepting his work on our behalf, and then he wants us to live our lives with joy and peace and freedom. That's the goal. Through all of this is joy, peace, and happiness. And that is what meditating on Christ's intercession for us and do. As our heavenly high priest, Christ is continually praying for us, interceding for us before our Father in heaven. Do you think about that very often? Do you consider what Christ is in the business of doing right now for you? I know it's not something that I think about very often, but this is a good reminder for us that even as it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he says, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What an awesome promise that is. It's remarkable to consider that even as our sin is what caused him to suffer and die, he is now interceding in our behalf, applying for our benefit the atoning power of his sacrificial death on the cross. As an adopted son or daughter of God, there's no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. We know that from Romans 8.1. But there's also uh, no one who can condemn us. Also, for as Paul says in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The one who suffered and died for you, who rose from the dead, in your behalf, now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, serving as your mediator 
as your advocate and your intercessor. As you meditate on these truths, joy will surely follow. Well, in conclusion, we see that God is gracious and forgiving to those who have godly grief over their sins. According to the text we read in 2 Corinthians, this grief is a precursor to repentance, which is what we have learned. It's a U-turn in belief and behavior. But we have also learned that repentance is also a result of God's patience, his long-suffering, and his kindness toward us. Therefore, we see that God's desire is always that we be honest with him and with others about our own brokenness and our sinfulness. This is the antidote to sinful pride and arrogance which militates against the gospel. It is also the pathway toward a closer and more intimate relationship with the Lord. Confessing our sin deepens our faith and renews our commitment to fighting sin in our lives. Most importantly, repentance brings glory to God because it emphasizes our need for atonement through the work of Christ on the cross. Furthermore, though, sometimes when we consider the destruction that sin has caused in our lives and in the lives of others, we may be led to despair. We may feel that, as the people of Judah felt after having their crops ravaged by locusts, but the hope we have through repentance is the promise that God gave through Joel when he said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. What a great promise for us to end on this morning. God can take all of those years that have been wasted as you have been following the foolishness and folly of sin, and he can restore them to you for his glory. I love to be able to witness this play out in people's lives. We see it happen when the man who was a drug addict or an alcoholic for years and years comes to Christ in repentance and faith. And then with passion begins to serve those who are still addicts or who are recovering addicts to find healing in Jesus Christ. We also see it happen in the life of a man who spent years feeding his addiction to sexual lust who after finally coming to a place of godly grief for his sin, comes to genuine repentance and faith, and then begins a journey glorifying God by helping others trapped in the same prison to get freedom. We see it in the life of Marin Stewart. She's a member of our church. She gave me permission to share how God is restoring the time that she spent running away from God, working in the sex industry. Through the supernatural act of God transforming her soul, she received the grace of repentance and faith. And she now actively goes back to the women who are either still trapped in this life or are trying to find a way out. And she shows to them the way of escape through Jesus Christ, who rescued her from the muck and mire that was her life for so long. And if you know Marin, as I do, her joy is infectious and inspiring. And this is a direct quote that she gave me an email last night. She said, I desire for people to know that God is still working miracles and he is bigger than the darkness of this fallen world. I am proof of that. And I see evidence of his light and his power daily. 
Not only did he restore the years, but he overflows my heart with love, life, light, freedom, wisdom, and purpose, something I can only experience through him. His restoration goes far beyond anything we can imagine or hope for. Isn't that awesome? Amazing. And you know she loves these women. She loves them with the love of Christ. Even as many of you show these women the same kind of love through the gifts that you gave them for Christmas, through the giving tree that we had set up. These women were amazed and blessed by your generosity that you had for complete strangers. And I believe that for many of them, this was the first time they had ever been shown this kind of love. And in this way, God gave to us an avenue where we might, where we were able to glorify him by loving the least of these, our sisters. So as you make your resolutions for the coming year, ask yourself, if that change that you want to make actually is something, a sin that you need to repent for. And if so, I pray that God will grant unto you his grace so that you can and will truly repent and be changed forever. So we're going to take communion today, as we do every Sunday. And the, the communion table was something that was established by Jesus Christ for us and for our benefit. It's for us to go and, and, and have um, bread and wine or juice, and that symbolizes his body and his blood that he broke on the cross. His body was broken on the cross and shed his blood for us so that, so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God on our own. He faced it for us, and he did it so that we would remember him, that we would recall his suffering for us. But it's also a place where we can go a time where before we go, we do some self-reflection and examination. If there's something that you need to repent for, if there's a sin that you've been hiding, covering up in your life, it's a good time to get it out. Confess that to God. If it involves others, confess it to them. And receive God's grace. You don't have to carry that garbage with you forever. You don't have to carry that sack of filth on your back. No one is, we weren't built for that. We were, we were, we were created to be free and happy and joyful sons and daughters of God. And if you've never, ever um, come to faith in Christ, then let this be the moment you do that. Let this be the moment that you, that you um, lay aside your rebellion against God, that you actually experience some of that grief that I've been talking about, where you might, where you might um, recognize that, that your sins are an offense to a holy and righteous God, but that he loves you so much that he sent his only son for you to die on the cross for your sins. And then come and have communion with us. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word and for your, for your son, Jesus Christ, who, who did make all things possible for us, who opened the way of salvation for us, who, and for your enabling us to be able to repent, Lord, and to have faith and believe in your son. Um, thank you, Lord, that um, uh, you give us all things and that you make all things possible for us through Jesus Christ, our Son. In Jesus' name, amen.